What's going on? How's everybody doing out there in podcast land? We are back. Yes, I know it's been a while and we apologize for that, but we are back with yet another episode. And I think it's time we take a look at something current, something that at this recording is currently nominated for an Oscar. No, not any of the major Oscars, mind you, not picture, not director, not actor. No, no, none of that. But for one Oscar, for one particular Oscar, best song. Obviously, we'll be talking about that song as the uh, as the episode goes on. But today we are going to be talking about the life and legacy that is Phineas Taylor Barnum, PT to his friends and alleged associates, and or maybe not him, but Hugh Jackman's version of him in The Greatest Showman. Yeah, I think we talked about uh, P.T. Barnum a little bit in the last episode, um, particularly the things that uh, they chose to gloss over or uh, leave out in the movie. Because, <laughs> I mean, like, let's be honest, P.T. Barnum has a fascinating life story. And yeah, you know, it, it, there's several movies you can make about his life. And, of course, he's such a classic figure in American history. How could you not? But, mm-hmm. man, the version in the movie is just incredibly divergent <laughs> from history. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, this is in contrast with the story that they're telling and the message that they're trying to send, which is, which is basically, you know, let your freak flag, freak flag fly. And, yeah, try saying that. Um, before you had any fucking coffee, and I can't even get through it the first time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, um, not giving up on your dreams or uh, just being a successful grifter, but yeah, we'll we'll go into the nitty gritty of uh, P.T. Barnum and his numerous numerous ventures and. Um, some of the things that uh, you know they 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 chose to leave out of the movie, and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you're in for a wild ride. Oh my God, yes. So according to Hugh Jackman, anyway, P.T. Barnum is like you know your quintessential American uh, proponent of the American dream, the kind of guy who pulls himself up by his bootstraps, comes up with an idea, and becomes successful as a result of it and that idea is basically creating a museum of oddities if it were yeah um you know it's a very horatio alger story of someone who started out incredibly poor and through i mean i guess it's also quite dickensian in that sense um yeah they have an idea, and then uh, with uh, enough vim and vinegar, they manage to become millionaires and build uh, build a little something for them and their family while, uh, you know, exploiting mm-hmm. freaks. Uh, yeah, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but according to the movie, anyway, uh, he, P.T. Uh, Barnum started out as a, a tailor's son who... Uh, after one particular visit to a house where he meets the woman who eventually becomes his future wife by coincidence, 
then his father dies. Then he, it's not really explained, but he, I feel like he gets a job working on a railroad or something. And the movie just cuts ahead like 20 years later. Yeah. Um, you know, just as people were wont to do at the time, they sign away their life for the railroad for a bit. And then, uh, I guess he ends up becoming like, uh, in like, uh, what is it for a merchant company for, for like a shipping company. Oh yeah. 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 He ends up like having a, I guess like a Clark job as a, for something for a shipping company. And, it's where we get the first hints that, you know, he's uh, not a stand-up guy. <laughs> exactly. So the, uh, the company he's working for eventually uh, goes under, uh, go figure, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's discovered that the ships that are like the bread and butter of that company belong in the, are now at the bottom of the South China Sea. And right before he leaves, he takes the uh, was it the ledgers of those ships or the, the deeds, the titles, the deeds, the yeah. deeds and titles of those <laughs> ships, and through uh, a brilliant act of uh, chicanery, is able to get a uh, a small loan. It was given a small loan of a million dollars. No, it probably probably wasn't that much back in the 1840s, but with that loan, I think it was like ten thousand bucks. Uh, is able to build himself a uh, a museum. So this is where I, it, you know, the the story diverges from history because actually before um, before he really uh, became, you know, having a theater or a museum, he was in the uh, he was in the <laughs> he was in the showman circuit already by the time he was twenty five. So. Actually, 1835, he was already uh, he was already quite the huckster, and um, his first major show was a blind and almost completely paralyzed slave woman by the name of Joyce Heth, who he purported to be George Washington's mammy, and said to be 161 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, well, you have to remember that even though this was in 1835, uh, slavery was already outlawed in New York by the time, but at the same mm-hmm. time, uh, Barnum exploited a loophole that allowed him to lease her for a year for a thousand dollars. Uh, so oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And, uh, and it gets, four, it, it gets better. <laughs> oh my God. Um, it, it, th- <clears throat> this this poor woman, though seriously, he basically paraded her around New York for ten to twelve hours a day, and she was already like pretty frail. Yeah, she was actually like eighty something years old, and at the t- and after her death, he performed a live autopsy in a saloon, where people can <clears throat> pay fifty cents to see a dead woman being cut up. <laughs> yeah. So you can you can get the idea right away. This this guy, kind of a dick. Yeah. So uh, returning back to the movie. Um, so I guess what they were trying to show with the movie is that at the time he was at the bank, there was also a little person in the bank, 
and uh, eventually this kind of inspires him to uh, oh you know what uh, uh, um, I guess people want to see uh, the freaks and the geeks. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so because uh, at his museum, the museum uh, what was it called like Barnum's uh, American Museum. It was full of a lot of uh, morbid curiosities, if you will. There was a lot of skeletons. There was a a depiction of a guillotine for some bizarre reason and uh like in the movie one of his daughters points out it's like you know like oh why don't you have more any uh any live things yeah and it's like it's like i have a brilliant idea so he goes to the home of a uh, uh the, li- the little guy uh whose name is charles stratton and basically uh signs him on to become uh general tom thumb the smallest person that ever walked alone. And in the, in the movie, he, in the movie, it's said to be that, you know, uh, Charles Stratton is like, uh, like in his early twenties or something like that. But in actuality, uh, when he found Charles Stratton, Charles Stratton was only about four years old. I don't know why. I I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And by he was only four years old, but was stated to be eleven. And he was taught how to do all these uh, impressions, impersonations. He imitated people from Hercules and Napoleon. And by the time he was five years old, he was already he was already drinking wine and smoking several cigars for the public's amusement. Is that? That's child labor. That's child exploitation and child labor. Why wasn't he locked up for that? Yeah, and uh, we, I think we mentioned that uh, P.T. Barnum had an exhibit called the What Is It, which is a literally a black man from the South with uh, microcephaly that he dressed up like an ape and stuck in a zoo. Oh my God. <laughs> See when they, when people say they want the good old days, this is what they mean. Oh uh, yeah, this is what the idiot's talking about when he says, "I want to make I want to make America great again," you know? Oh my God, this that's is, what he's uh, referring to. This is the best time in the world for the white man, and oh my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh God, this is just this is awful. And I mean, also, uh, just in case, um, you know, people with dwarfism and black people aren't enough. He also had a coterie of Native American dancers uh, throughout his career, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I mean, it, it, Barnum's collection of like live acts and curiosities were everything from albinos giants uh fat boys uh magicians a little a little thing called circassian beauties which i could probably go into detail and of course a lot of the the more macabre things like stuffed animals and the fiji mermaid Mm -hmm. yeah well so basically to get into uh exotic women or circassian beauties for a bit it's like part of the weird like 19th century like 
race science where they tried to find the original like white man so um, mm-hmm. this is uh, this is also where the the this is also why white people are called caucasian is that like the theory was that um the original white people came from the caucasus mountains and so they were parading all the people from the caucasus so circassians georgians um ossetians armenians they were paraded in uh well in europe it, it basically in human zoos and in america's in circuses of like white women with like gigantic curly hair that's mm-hmm. basically what they thought the original white people look like huh interesting yeah and uh yeah it's also like a weird kind of fascination with the Ottoman Empire as well, where they come up with all these stories of how these women were part of the Sultan's harem and they were odalisks or uh, the favored wives of the far e- of the Near East. <laughs> <laughs> different times, people. Different yeah. times. Also, it's kind of funny, like. Um, I think all the way up to the 50s or I guess whenever Bradbury was writing The Illustrated Man like you're like you could make a living just by having all all kinds of shitty tattoos on your body but now mm-hmm. you can just go to Silver Lake or Bushwick and everyone has <laughs> shitty tattoos. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh <laughs> sorry folks that live in Silver Lake and uh Bushwick, uh, nothing against your uh your towns, but, uh, yeah. I'll fuck with those neighborhoods, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and a lot of people don't fuck with those neighborhoods because it's super expensive to live there. Yeah. All the, all the people that have been there for generations get pushed out by, uh, the scions of the Upper East Side that managed to afford these newly built condos. Yes. And that's happening now in Queens, too. Damn. You know, I think my friend's right. I think Bronx is just going to be the the final stand of old New York. Uh-huh. Definitely. The Bronx will never be gentrified. Never. Never. <laughs> oh, man. They're going to die with their Tims on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, <laughs> anyway, going back to the movie, he gathers a whole, uh, coterie of people. And while, you know, like, you know, while they're nervous at first, he literally pushes them onto the stage. And I mean, the shock value is already there, but in a matter of seconds, they're already a, a big hit and more and more people come to the, come to the museum, much to the, uh, much to the uh, chagrin of some of the drunken locals, because of course the movie needs uh, antagonists. Basically, uh, th- there's there's all kinds of weird things where um, he hears the bearded lady singing and he goes up, and yeah, like basically it coerces her into onto the stage. <laughs> <laughs> literally what was that what was the the thing that he said to um to to every, basically everyone it's like uh, um 
you know, uh, fuck. It's like, uh, the people are going to love you. They just don't know it yet or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is not exactly true. I mean, as, as much as people were fans or like have a fascination for, you know, the circus or, or I guess at this point of uh, Barnum's career, the museum and like all the shows they had there. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of like really a bile fascination or like a morbid fascination with, yes, I guess the, the abnormal you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, which is all fine, which is all fine and good, but you have to understand people that, you know, P.T. Barnum regularly exploited his own talent for his own personal gain. Yeah. He like, he barely paid them anything. It's just like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out, go out to your thing. You know, I, I'm a champion of the underdog. I, I hired all these great, hired all these great people to be in my circus and yet I'm making money off of them hand over fist. Yeah. Well, he probably, yeah, like uh, probably the actual Barnum couldn't give less of a shit about the people he employed. So, right. Yeah. This uh, bizarre characterization of him in the film is something we'll come, come back to throughout the episode. Absolutely. So already, you know, he's, he has success. He started his uh, he started his circus, which by now is including uh, trapeze artists, and this is where uh, Zendaya's character, and that's where they come into the fold. And then he meets up with uh, Zac Efron's character, who is a former playwright and is around to bring a little bit of class to the circus because he's always trying to impress this this one critic. For some reason, it's like, it's like, why are you worried about this guy? Like, who gives a shit what this guy says? You have a hit on your hands. Keep it up. I think that's also when we uh, dive deeper into the movie later. Like the, I guess if I want to channel my inner Slavoj Zizek, it's like, I guess the ideology of the movie is that uh, P.T. Barnum is always trying to show that he belongs in the upper class. So... Just that mm-hmm. this guy from the New York Herald basically um, yeah. is the one that he really has to impress, and mm-hmm. he he always like tries to prove himself to the white Thai society of New Old New York. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I feel like what he's doing with that is not just the white Thai society. He's trying to prove himself to. His wife, and in particular his uh, his wife's parents, who have already who have always you know rejected him mm-hmm. because of where he came from. Yeah, man. Um, well, I guess it's also the quote unquote positive message of the movie is um, uh, fuck classism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you could also see that in uh, the Philip Carlyle character, which I have no idea why they. Uh, call him philip carlisle because like wasn't his partner like called bailey that's right so like why did they have to change the name i mean i'm I'm like he's dead like i I don't think you need to clear any rights (laughs) well i think i think because of the uh 
because of all the controversy that the Barnum and Bailey circus had been having in recent years, almost to the point where they actually no, to the point where they closed it down permanently. Yeah. yeah. I guess the, <laughs> I guess the family of James Bailey said like, you know, yeah, we don't want our, uh, our ancestors name uh, mentioned in this. So, uh, come up with another character. I, that's what I feel like. I, I'm not sure. I don't think people would have cared if, you know, Zach Efron played James Bailey, but I don't know. Philip Carlyle just sounds like, a, and I, I know I'm using Zach Efron as this sounds like a high school production of, a, of the greatest show. It's like, hi, my name is Philip Carlyle. Yeah. I spent my time <laughs> reading Dickens and, Doing doing jigs on stage. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, but yeah, eventually Barnum and uh, Carlisle uh, they strike up a partnership, and uh, Carlisle, you know, just to add another uh, storyline, uh, falls in love with uh, the African American trapeze artist uh, Ann Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Which uh, up until another point in the movie, they they kind of dance around each other. Yeah, they do. They do, and you don't really see much at first. I mean, there is a little bit of a yeah, you know, I think you're pretty hot and everything, but no, nothing comes of it. Nothing really comes of it until they all go to a they all go to London. To see Queen uh, Victoria, yeah. and that's when Barnum runs into the singer known as Jenny Lind, the Swedish Nightingale. Mm-hmm. Who, um, yeah, apparently has an incredible voice, but this was from the time before recordings existed, um, mm-hmm. so we probably will never hear what she actually sounded like. I'm. Pretty sure we can. I'm pretty sure her her stuff's in like the like the Library of Congress or something like that. Is it is 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 it on one of those Edison rolls? Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Thomas Edison. That's another uh, 19th century, early 20th century figure whose movie I'm dreading to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm pretty. Oh my god. I feel like I just came up with a title. Like, feel like the title of that just going to be like, you know, they're just going to call it the Wizard of Menlo Park. That's about it. Yeah. Or maybe the current wars. <laughs> yeah. They, they're going to bring back uh, David Bowie from the dead so he can play Tesla again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which I thought he was awesome as that in The Prestige. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Prestige is an underrated uh, Nolan movie. Oh, it sure is, for damn sure. I, I think it, it was squeezed in between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, and everyone was in the oh. peak of... Was it? It was, was it? It was before. It came out in 06. Didn't Dark... Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Dark Knight came out in 08. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it was between Batman Begins and Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, which, of course, also has Hugh Jackman in it. You know, everything is connected. 
<laughs> so, uh, somehow it's all somehow it's, it's all limited reference pools and uh everyone knows everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yeah uh pt barnum he he becomes enchanted by the, the swedish uh i don't know what Nightingale. you call it soloist i guess because she doesn't I... really uh sing with anyone oh. else yeah, vocalist. vocalist I yeah, think. yeah, vocalist. And uh, finagles her to perform in America with him as her manager. And, yeah. Uh, this is one of the turning points in the movie where Barnum finally gains the approval of the aristocrats and uh, reveals another side of himself where he begins to neglect. Um, you know, the people who made him famous in the first place. That's right. That's right. He becomes almost infatuated with uh, Jenny Lind, uh, almost to the point, no, to the point where he takes her out on tour all over the country and around the world. And it's here that, you know, the focus is kind of taken off him for a moment and back on a, Philip Carlyle and his uh, budding relationship with the uh, with Ann Wheeler because at the start they almost kind of secretly hold hands at the first Jenny Lynn performance then uh, then there's a moment then there's that moment where um, um, wait what's that scene hang on oh yeah she goes to the uh, to the theater and uh, uh, she said that uh, Mr. Barnum has left the uh, two tickets, left a ticket for her, and then uh, Philip comes in. And is like actually, it's two tickets, and they uh, they're about to go into the uh, to the theater, and then they are accosted by uh, Philip's parents, who are uh, uh, most displeased with the. I, I know that's not what they actually sound like, but uh, they immediately disapprove of this uh, budding union. <laughs> Philip, my word, you're you're I fraternizing just, with, with with those people. Like this is most unorthodox. Yeah, I mean, you know, in their head, they're just like saying all the slurs that's ever been invented. Yeah, well, they are. <laughs> so, and Philip, I can't believe you. <laughs> I I just can't believe it. This is just I. Well, I, I never. They actually, I, th- I think the mom actually does say, have you no shame? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. It's like, wow, that line was actually written. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those like hacky scenes, I guess. But, you know, yeah. it, it, it's part of the, it's part of the romance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of ro- speaking of romance, uh, shifting the focus back to uh, Barnum and uh, Jenny Lynn, there's one perform there's one performance in particular where she starts to fall in love with him, and before one performance, almost kisses him, uh, and then he's like, you know, no, 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 sorry, I I can't, you know, like you know, I have my wife and my kids to think about. 
And she's just like, okay, fuck you then. This is going to be my last performance. Yeah. And uh, at the end of that performance, you know, she, she steals a kiss and gets photographed by the papers. That's right. And, of course, when he gets back, you know, it's front page news, coupled at the same time with uh, his museum, his uh, circus being uh, burned down by a bunch of angry hooligans. And, God, wow, they're really, they're really hitting you in the head with that right there. It's like his wife and kids just left him because of, because of a misunderstanding and his circus burned down. It's the low point and, you know, he gets depressed and, uh, you know, Jenny Lynn cancels, uh, uh, the rest of the tour, uh, basically he's a quote unquote rock bottom. And, uh, eventually he goes to a pub and has an epiphany when all of his uh, circus folk uh, come back to uh, convince him to rebuild. That's right. And in a moment of sheer, I guess you could call it brilliance, he takes, he leaves the bar and literally runs after the, <laughs> runs after the train to go to the, uh, to go to the home of uh, his wife's uh, parents and uh, his children said like, you know, Oh, he's, she's at the beach. And within like five, within like five minutes of that whole scene, it's like, it's like they get back together. Everything's perfect. Now it's like, wow, that was quite the turnaround. Yeah. And <laughs> eventually, um, they do rebuild the circus, and uh, Carlisle uh, becomes a 50-50 partner, which Barnum happily accepts. And this is where the Barnum and Carlisle circus starts. Where <laughs> they buy a big top tent and uh, have shows at first on the docks and then on the road. That's right. I don't know, man. I don't think Barnum and Carlisle still has the has that same ring to it as Barnum and Bailey does. Yeah. Well, you know, Barnum and Bailey, it's uh, it's the same beginning syllables. Uh-huh. Uh, what is that? Uh, alliteration? Yeah. Alliteration, yeah. Whew. I'm, I'm glad my master's degree is worth something. Oh, <laughs> same here, same here, man. Every day I wake up, I look at that thing, and I see how far I've come yeah. since then. <laughs> so, yeah, that basically takes us to the end of the movie. And uh, as, a, as a poetic device, they, they play the same song they did in the intro, and it's a grand finale. Everyone's... Uh, happy and uh you know it shows off barnum literally passing the top hat to uh zach efron Mm -hmm. and uh he goes back to i guess he fucks off back to connecticut and lives with his kids yes uh he basically he goes back to living the quiet life so to speak as only one could have around the 
around the uh, dawn of the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's a plot of the movie, and we've been revealing the actual history behind uh, P.T. Barnum, but. You know, uh, since this is a musical after all, what what are the things that really, uh, I don't know, that rubs me the wrong way is that like, on the one hand, you know, I mean, I mean I'm aware that, you know, facts shouldn't get, really get in the way of telling a good story. And mm-hmm. like, you know, you're free to take artistic license and everything. And yet... The soundtrack is really uplifting and inspiring on a story that's really, you know, not. <laughs> uh huh. I know. It, I honestly don't get it. I mean, this should be, this movie should be like an expose about how horrible the man was. But that that music, though, that. Oh my god, that music is just so brilliant. Yeah. Um so the music was written by Pasek and Paul Benj Pasek and uh what's his fucking name? Um they they they're the people behind uh, Dear Evan Hansen and uh, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think this was actually written before Dear Evan Hansen came out because I think it's been in development for a while. But Yeah, since like 09 or like 2011. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, this is a duo that knows how to write some fucking tunes. And yeah, mm-hmm. this is this soundtrack is incredible. And mm-hmm. it does stick with you. And there's... there's for me, there's a sense of familiar familiarity too, where like I feel like I've heard every song before, and it's yes. catchy, and it's like I can't really place what exactly about it, but it's just good. Well, I mean, think about all the uh, think about all the uh, songs you grew up with. You know, watching all those classic Disney films, it feels a lot like that at times. You have like the opening song, you have the opening. You know bombastic number mm. you have the i want song you have the uh eventual showstopper you have the uh i'm down in the doldrum song but eventually i'll pick myself back up again and you have the finale yeah and it, and it hits all the right uh all the right places all the right mm. emotions yeah and yeah so you know there's the big show opener the greatest show which mm-hmm. really gets you into the mood. Mm-hmm. And um, there's Come Alive, which is an absolute, you know, showstopper if there ever was one. Then you have the uh, the I Want song, you know, A Million Dreams, mm-hmm. uh, you, which he sings first as a little kid and then as a... As a grown-up, you know, as if to say, like, you know, this is what I want to do for my life, starting as me and eventually with you, and together we'll build this great family and we'll make all of our dreams come true kind of thing. I did not mean for that to rhyme, but... 
It's just what the soundtrack yeah, does, man. I know, I know. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I actually cried a little bit during the whole uh, "A Million Dreams" song. It was, it's a real, really well done. I mean, yeah, it is. It is incredibly well done, and it is well written, and you know, it, it's catchy. So, mm-hmm. which again, like when I was in the theater watching this, I was like, this music deserves a better story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's like you actually remember, you actually remember the music though, as opposed to La La Land, where if you go up to somebody and ask them, but by the way, they also did this, that as well. If you go up to anybody, go up to random 100 people and ask them, name a song from La La Land. I bet you they can't do it. I mean, I only know uh, the first one, City of Stars. I know, yeah. <laughs> and that's only because, you know, as native Angelinos, we're just like, yeah, there's no fucking way that people would get out and break into song in the middle of the crowded 405. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just get fucking cussed out by, <laughs> by some it's... coked up exec on his way to West uh, L.A. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, instead of like you know, like you know, like welcome to the city, or I don't, I don't even remember how it goes, or like that opening piano number or something, you'll get more of like, hey, asshole, get the fuck out of the road. Yeah, which happens anyway, even when people aren't singing. singing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's This Is Me, there's Rewrite the Stars, there's uh, From Now On. And, you know, yes. I, so This Is Me, That that's a song, that's the one that's up for an Oscar, right? It is, yes. Yeah. And, and Okay, like, yes, this is a great song. This is, it's got a good message. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, the right person is singing it. But... I mean, just thinking of the history of what like actually happened to bearded ladies in the circus. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not it's not triumphant. No, it's not. But it's meant to feel triumphant. Yeah. <laughs> it's um yeah, it goes back to like this this clash between you know the. The spectacle of the movie, which is the story and and the music and you know the I, the the message that they're trying to deliver, which is you know everyone can make it. There's uh, it's an inspiring story of someone with hustle and grit, and uh, you can let your freak flag fly. But pretty much, again, like the underlying ideology is that like a Barnum could only get there by first of all. Uh, lying about owning a bunch of ships, uh, which, you know, he stole the title and deed from his old job, which went out of business. And then he became rich basically through the exploitation of society's outcasts. And Mm -hmm. as soon as he can abandon them, he did. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) As if to say, like, you know, yes, this is my group. I nurtured them. I'm responsible for them. But hey, it's your problem now. Bye. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly American story, whichever way you want to look at it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because 
Yes, you know, I mean, have you looked around lately? All the grifters are uh, being rich and launching scar uh, launching cars into outer space or becoming president. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I saw Elon <laughs> Elon Musk launch the Tesla into outer space. And hey, I mean, you know, Elon Musk. Uh, I'm glad he's successful in everything, but he has an incredibly weird sense of like what regular people want, like. Right. Apparently, Union of Auto Workers are like, you know, they're negotiating with people at Tesla for for all the people who are assembling uh, the Tesla cars. And uh -huh. uh, Elon Musk said, oh, what if we give them uh, pizza parties and roller coasters? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what <laughs> what, you know, Joe Q public wants is a fucking roller coaster when uh, they don't have health care. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yes, go on something that could potentially be uh, potentially be backbreaking, depending on what coaster you go on, and uh, yeah, not have the health insurance to cover it because you decided to be clever about it. Yeah, but <laughs> again, um, I could see why this movie is as successful as it is. I agree. And um, really, you know, this is a movie that came out at the right time. And um, if you want to if you really want to forget about uh, some of the shittier things that's happening in your life and you want to have to, you know, feel a sense of wonder again, it is it is a good movie in that sense. But it's just incredibly oh. contradictory and it juxtaposes itself many times over. Right. Look, if you want to just, you know, have a couple, like a couple hours to just sit back and, you know, just take everything in, you know, and enjoy the spectacle, then, yeah, definitely this movie is for you. If, you know, if you're history nerds like us, then then you're going to have a hard time separating a fact from reality. That being said, though, there are a few numbers that I do like to point out, one of them being uh, the other side, that uh, that entire bar sequence with the Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron. Oh, yeah. Um, let, let's talk about uh, the technical level of the film. Just like yeah. the choreography is quite a sight. Oh, it's genius. It's absolute genius. I wish there was an Oscar for choreography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, as much of a hard-on the Academy has for a musical, I'm surprised they don't have it. <laughs> I feel like they feel like they learned their uh, mistake from last year. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> By giving every practically every award under the sun to La La Land even though that didn't deserve it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a movie that sucks off old Hollywood. Oh my god, does it ever. And for all you La La Land, you know, uh, fans out there, I hate to break it to you, but uh, when your movie is about a uh, a white guy who wants to be the savior of jazz, then you're already off. You're already off on the wrong foot, right there. You've already started digging your hole. That's a little bit hard to come out of. Hell yeah! The other side, the choreography is incredible. <laughs> oh, it is. I I'm in shock. I'm like, what the fuck? How many takes did they do this? Mm hmm. And shout Between, out to the like, guy who who plays the bartender in that scene. 
I know. <laughs> he was brilliant with like his stone face expression and basically just like, like fuck, I need to grab this. Now this. Now that. Now I got to move this. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just I'm just thinking to myself like, "Oh my god. This is nuts." And how old is Hugh Jackman? It's uh Hugh Jackman is I think he's old to see. He is uh, 49 right now. He's going to be 50 this year. Yeah. And he can and he can keep up with Zach Efron, so who's like 20 years younger than him. Yeah, That's yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Good for him. He yeah, yeah. I know this was a passion project for him and he really uh he really gave it his all. Hey man, I uh... He's always been a theater boy at heart, and I think we showed that very well when we talked about uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. That's right. Um, yeah, if you haven't yeah. listened to uh, Hugh Jackman uh, singing a song from Oklahoma, be sure to do that. Yes, please do. <laughs> please do. We need more followers. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, Do whatever you want, guys, but... If you want to listen to a couple of guys talking talking about the genius that is Rodgers and Hammerstein, then check out uh, our episode on that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so beyond Barnum and Carlisle and um, what, what was the bearded lady's name? Uh, her name was Letty, uh, Letty, Letty, Letty. 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 Yeah. Letty, Letty and Anne. Letty yeah. Um, the film actually doesn't focus that much on the actual, like, quote unquote, freaks that were in uh, Barnum's circus. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, like they're, uh, you know, I mean, in all the big numbers, they're, they're, um, they're all present. And, uh, yeah. Um, they're all on screen, and I mean, you get like people playing Chang and Eng Bunker, the the famous Siamese twins. Um, you got the the dog face boy, and uh, the three legged man, and uh, the that 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 quote unquote Irish giant. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Uh, you got the uh, the Lord of Leeds, the huge man. Prince Constantine, the tattooed man. You have the juggler. You have the trapeze artists. Yeah. You know, uh, a Chang and Eng movie would actually be really interesting because um, they were they were ties in America before the Civil War. And I think they end up living in Virginia or somewhere. And their descendants are still alive. And, and yeah, like, they were allowed to marry white women. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. Oh wait. Yeah. I, I read about that. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, uh, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, mis- miscegenation is wrong. You, you can't have a, you know, your whites and your coloreds mix like your clothes. But, uh, oh yeah. They, yeah, they can marry Siamese, Siamese twins. I don't know. I, I, I have no words. <laughs> Man, I mean, 
Yeah. Um. Yeah, let's talk about the the Zendaya number too. Oh, that was good. I loved rewrite the stars. I thought that was absolutely brilliant, and she actually did her own stunts. Yeah, she that. did her own like Cirque du Soleil uh, ring and uh, cloth stunts. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. It really is, and I'm just like, wow. It's like you're absolutely amazed by the uh, by the spectacle of it all. Yeah, and it's. Uh, kind of sweet you know and it, and it ends on a, on a on a more bittersweet note than i guess the other songs but yeah still um I think we we keep <laughs> coming back to it but yeah it's really catchy and incredibly inspiring at the same time it is and you have to think to yourself like it's like what there. I know there probably was like a little padded mat on the on the floor of the circus, but you have to wonder. It's like, okay, how many times did they actually do that? And she, and she dropped them, or she <laughs> like came close to letting him go. Yeah. But what really surprised me in all that was the natural chemistry that Zac Efron and Zendaya had with each other. Yeah. It's like I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, okay. I think something might be happening here, and not just on screen, but possibly off as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's actually you know fairly believable. It is, which already you know alone elevates their uh, <laughs> their characters. But yeah, I that number easily. Uh, is easily one of the one of the best. I'm sorry that that wasn't nominated. I, I'm actually very surprised that wasn't nominated for a uh, best original song. There could have been like five songs that were nominated for best original song, but that's true. No, I guess guess you had to have one, which is all all fine and good. Yeah, and everything. But the other number I'd like to talk about is uh, from now on, which is like the the penultimate. I, I was down in the dumps, but now I'm redeeming myself song, which I had no idea that Hugh Jackman could ever sing that high. Yeah. It, I think from now on is actually my favorite number. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, it's basically an A section, a B section, and then just repeats the, the chorus until the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's um it's the down in the dump song and then he rallies on and uh all his friends inspire him. And it's a hell of a dance sequence too. It is. It is between everybody that's dancing at the bar, uh him eventually running after the train while singing at full volume, which I I know was probably done with uh with lip syncing, but still it's quite impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, the line that I start, you know, like an anthem in my heart as he's singing that. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was sitting there with my friend just going like, Whoa, holy shit. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, at, at this point, he's like he he's forty nine, and he can still sing that high. So, mm-hmm. um, it's all those steroids he took for Wolverine. <laughs> Do <laughs> you think all those steroids uh, helped him sing higher? Maybe. Or maybe just like, but, him going off cycle uh, preserved his voice. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know what? Whatever he did, it worked. Actually, no, no. He... Uh, in the original uh, workshops for the movie, he was singing with uh, uh, Jeremy Jordan, who's a very popular uh, Broadway actor, who was supposed to, who was originally supposed to be uh, uh, Philip Carlyle, but because he's not a quote-unquote name, they gave it to Zac Efron instead. Oh. Interesting. Well, I guess not that interesting. I mean... Hollywood tends no. to, uh, they tend to, uh, you know, do some, uh, do some questionable casting decisions based on, uh, quote unquote, recognizability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, but you want, you wonder though, this guy actually, uh, actually has like a natural, you know, tenor and falsetto, like falsetto voice. He, he's been on a lot of shows. He's been in a rock of ages. He's been in West side story. He's been in Bonnie and Clyde. He's been in Heather's the musical. He's been in newsies and he's been in finding Neverland. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's quite the famous actor. Yeah, but in certain circles, he mm-hmm. is. But it's not like... I mean, he does have a few acting credits, like legit acting credits to his name, but it's not as well-known as... As a kid from High School Musical. On... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel so bad for Zac Efron because I know how hard he's trying to get rid of that image, but no matter what he does, he's going to be... <laughs> He's gonna be that guy till the day he dies, unfortunately. Yeah. How, how tired is Zach Efron over um, people singing, uh, you know, <laughs> a soaring, flying song? Oh my god! I'm pretty sure he's kind of sick and tired, sick and tired of it. But I've met him before. He's actually a pretty chill dude. Okay. Well, I guess if you don't, you know, act act like a psycho fan. Exactly. Just be normal. Yeah. Just which <laughs> interpret that however you wish. Yeah, just just you know, just don't try to get his hair clippings or whatever. Don't don't do any of that extra stuff. Just just treat him like a person. Right. What else can we say about the greatest showman? Hmm. I mean, it's a classic uh, revisionist uh, history movie. It's classic, you know, like let's take a real uh, 
let's take a real life figure and, you know, take some dramatic artistic uh, license with him and see how many people can and see how many people can watch it. I really want to know the entire thought process behind it as like, you know, let's take one of the, one of the people who can be considered like the first uh, entertainer, a guy who uh, pioneered the concept of show business, but was also one of the meanest, nastiest, ruthless people you would ever meet. And it, and still exploit and exploit them for his own personal gain and turn him into a sympathetic hero. I think also it says a lot about the time that we're living in and <laughs> just like the incredible resonance between 19th century values and how much we actually have not escaped from like the mores of the 19th century. When you think about it, like right. all of our ideas of success are still the same thing as like what Horatio Alger, or Charles Dickens would write. And yeah. All of the, all of the like weird, like things about American society is basically kind of frozen in 19th century style classism. Yeah. That, that I never quite understood. It's, it honestly harkens back to the days of, a. Uh, of MGM where, you know, they try to put on, put out like, you know, good old fashioned, you know, American movies, even though these were like, these guys were Jewish immigrants coming uh, over from Russia. I don't know, man. I mean, you know what, as much as we like to make fun and criticize these movies, they're still incredibly successful. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's part of America's love affair with charismatic characters. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's P.T. Barnum, there's Florence Ziegfeld, there's there's a million people throughout history. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm actually fairly surprised there's uh, there's not been movies that I can remember really about like the early early like robber baron style tycoons and them being rehabilitated for the 21st century. <laughs> oh, don't hold your breath. I'm pretty sure they're developing them as we speak. The Cornelius Vanderbilt story. <laughs> the John Rockefeller story. Or the, the J.P. Morgan story. The J.P. Morgan story. And um, Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, how a simple boy from Scotland became the steel tycoon. Yeah. He was basically the real-life Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Complete with over-the-top Scottish accent. Yeah. <laughs> and Uncle Scrooge. So did, uh, did, did uh, Andrew Carnegie have his own Huey, Dewey, and Louie? That we'd have to look into, and does does he have his own money pit <laughs> that he could <laughs> that he could just jump into? <laughs> yeah. The Ducktales, woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, fun fact about uh, P.T. Barnum's uh, post movie life: he was the mayor of Bridgeport. He was. Yeah. 
and um, his uh, his uh, you know propensity for uh, the obnoxious or the obscene didn't stop because I think he built several mansions and he was a big uh, he was a big fan of blackface, <laughs> which probably not surprising. <laughs> yeah, he uh, you know he. He staged a watered-down version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And you know Mm -hmm. what? To his credit, he also uh, spoke out against slavery somehow later in his life. Yeah. mm, I'm I'm starting to see all the contradictions right here. It's like, huh. Yeah. I mean, like, there's there's a quote, like, a human soul that God has created and Christ died for is not to be trifled with. It may tenant the body of a Chinaman, a Turk, an Arab, or a Hottentot. It is still an immortal spirit. So, you know, I don't know what happened later in life, but <laughs> I guess... Uh, you know, he, he realized um, some of the things he did were uh, kind of fucked up. Uh, yeah. So what do what did we learn about uh, the the life and times of Phineas T. Barnum? Uh, he was a complete asshole, but thanks to the magic that is Hollywood, he's reborn as a savior to all those people who have been cast out who have been ostracized yeah he's a he's a hero of the downtrodden where he worked them for uh, 10 cents a day um so people could gawk at them and uh i guess a child could dress around as uh napoleon and smoke cigars and drink wine mm-hmm. so so he's essentially no better than the guy who owns a sweatshop yeah or, or, you know, I mean, I guess to, you know, bring in the show business parallels. Just think of, like, the worst, like, sleaziest agent in show business or Broadway. Ooh, ooh, I can think of a few. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can think of a few. Okay, think think Ari Gold from, uh, from Entourage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Ari, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yeah this is uh yeah i mean that's basically his whole his whole thing was that like he found either people or objects that he could exploit and uh make make some money out of it mm-hmm. and again this is the weird contradictions of pt barnum at some point in his life he also crusaded against like hoaxes and um spiritualism what? yeah 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 if you read it up like he like he somehow like he, he he spoke out i think against seances and um uh, spiritualism that was like a hot item in 19th century society later on it's it's weird this guy literally was the inventor of the hoax yeah, who performed yeah. seances during his during his circus? What the fuck? Yeah, Did, was he worried that people were gonna find out he was a fraud? If he was a fraud, so he said like, you know, oh, hoaxes are bad. Well, it's weird because he like he said like 
um, he saw nothing wrong in entertainers or vendors using hoaxes or humbug, as he called it, for promotion, mm-hmm. as long as the public was getting value for money. But apparently he drew the line of like uh, at, at spiritualists and mediums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he testified against like uh, William Mumler, which uh, the lore podcast had an episode on William Mumler. Shout out to lore podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're into 30 minutes of spooky things in America. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, a. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what the hell was going on with P.T. Barnum eventually. He was a man who lived his life how he saw fit. And I guess by the end, most critics had forgiven him for everything that he did. I guess so. Uh P.T. Barnum, real American. Real. (laughs) I should make a soundboard for this podcast. (laughs) Do it. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Ah, man. So, yeah, um, Greatest Showman. It's a movie, you know, it's it's entertaining. Um, It's got a great soundtrack, but... Just as any movie that's based on a true story, bear in mind that this probably has nothing to do with the actual history of the people they're depicting. Absolutely. It's very rare that a, that a movie actually uh, portrays history accurately. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, um, well, if you're averse to uh, seeing the movie, then pick up the soundtrack. or It's probably on Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music. I'm sure it is. It's got to yeah. be. And, uh, yeah, who knows? Um, what else is up for a uh, best song? That's the original song, 2010s. This year, uh, it's going to be a Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name. Mm. Rem- Remember Me from Coco. Remember Me. Uh, Stand Up for Something from Marshall mm. and Mighty River from Mudbound. Yeah. Well, I guess, in my opinion, it's a toss-up between Remember Me and This Is Me. Yeah, it's probably going to... That's what's going on with the... <laughs> I think that's what's going on with the voters as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I did watch Call Me By Your Name and, I don't know, Mystery of Love wasn't that remarkable. Mm. It's uh, it's not like uh, it's not like Sufjan Stevens' uh, Illinois or mm. his other work, but yeah, um, we'll see if the Greatest Showman wins Best Song. We'll see, definitely. And um, well, I guess everyone will be listening to "This Is Me" at some point, so let's choose another song from the soundtrack. Yes. I feel like we can do uh, from now on. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. And it is the, basically it is the ending song. 
It is. And and that's a wrap, folks. Uh, this has been another episode of Questions Like This. And we didn't really ask anything because we didn't really plan for this episode. We just kind of <laughs> got inspired after both of us saw the movie. And we're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, we'll see you next time. My name is Aristo. And I'm Alex. And this is From Now On from The Greatest Showman. See ya. Champagne with kings and queens, the politicians praised my name. But those were someone else's dreams, the pitfalls of the man I became. For years and years, I chased their cheers, a crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here,